You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Good morning, everybody. So glad you're here this morning and that we get to look together at God's word this morning. Would you please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. Luke 17, 20 through 37. And this is the passage that the Lord in his providence has given us to focus on this morning as we make our way verse by verse through the book of Luke. And, um, and this is a, a wonderful portion of scripture. And so before we read the text and explain the text and apply the text, let's first recite our corporate memory verse for the month of December. And so let's say it out loud together. Shall we? Ready? Romans 12, 1, it's on the screen, but hopefully you don't need it, right? Okay, here we go. Ready? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Can you do it one more time? I appeal to you. Great. So let's spend some time on it this morning. At this point in Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul has just finished describing the unparalleled wisdom of God in salvation. So listen close. What Paul has just finished doing at this point in his letter to the Romans is He has just finished describing the unparalleled wisdom of God in the plan of salvation. So here's what God does. Romans 1 through 11. God creates a people which shows his goodness and his self-glorifying nature. God chooses a people, Israel, showing his covenantal love. God's aiming to show all these attributes about himself. God then hardens Israel, showing his holiness, his judgment, his wrath upon sin. And then God grafts in the Gentiles and saves the Gentiles showing his grace. And then by doing so, he makes Israel jealous. And then it leads to their repentance in whom God will save the elect of Israel, which shows his mercy. And so all of this, I mean, this, that was God's plan, right? Who would come up with a, a plan like that? And so all of this was a foreordained plan of salvation. It's genius. And it's described in chapters 1 through 11 of of Romans. And what Paul is saying at the end of Romans 11 is that God's perfect orchestration of all this displays his unparalleled wisdom and power and providence. That's what he's speaking of at the end of Romans chapter 11. All of this, think about this, all of that orchestration would be done under, uh, in front of the backdrop of, listen, uh, in front of the backdrop of creation, fall, crucifixion, resurrection, 
and consummation. And so the plan of salvation at the end of Romans chapter 11 causes Paul to say this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of who? How unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. Everything about the plan of salvation was pointing to who? To him. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, as we move into Romans chapter 12, it's incredibly similar to moving from Ephesians 3 to Ephesians 4. And it's, it moves from the indicative to the imperative. Romans 11 to Romans 12. It's, and, and this happens in nearly all of Paul's letters. He always does it this way. From who we are and what has happened to what God has done and what we should do. He always moves from teaching to exhortation, right? What God has done then to how we should live in light of these truths. He always moves in that direction. And so he moves from doctrine to application. He moves from explanation to exhortation. This is all that Paul does in his letters. And that's why, uh, to be honest with you, preaching is the way that it is. It's one of the, the patterns that we see. We read the text, we explain the text, and then we apply the text. You can't get right application until you get right doctrine, right? You can't get appropriate application to your life unless your theology is right, right? And so Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, he says this, until I come, look at this, devote yourselves, here's what the church should devote themselves to, the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. That involves all three of those things. We read this text, we teach the text, and we exhort with the text, right? And that's what Paul is doing. It should say something that Paul always starts with doctrine in his letters, and then right after doctrine, he moves to application. You have to start with right doctrine, and then you move to right application, right? And so just a couple of verses later in 1 Timothy 4, look at this. Paul says this, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, he's telling Timothy, so that all might see your progress. And what he's talking about there is his teaching of the word. Immerse yourself in the word that all might see your progress in teaching the word. And then he tells them very explicitly, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Those are the two aspects, the teaching and then the application or the life uh, uh, experiential, practical living out the word of God. If you keep an eye on those two things, what'll happen? If you persist in that, you'll save who? Yourself. And the people that you are talking to, the people that you're teaching. So this moves from theology to theology lived out, right? Now, Paul has just spent 11 chapters describing God's plan of salvation, which, by the way, the book of Romans is without question the greatest book that was ever written in the history of mankind. Um, You could spend a lifetime digging Uh, the truths out of the book of Romans. So now he's telling them how they should live. Think about this, folks. In light of that salvation, after being, listen now, listen, after being saved by this salvation, after, after knowing this salvation, what is appropriate to follow this salvation? What's appropriate What's the purpose of my life after salvation? What does God desire for the born-again believer after he is saved? What does God expect from you? Well, Paul uses in Romans 12.1 the word therefore. I appeal to you therefore. 
in light of everything that I have just told you in Romans 1 through 11, in light of everything that I've just said, considering that God saved you, considering his great plan of salvation through his mercy, you are now his, right? I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, the mercy of God in salvation. I'm appealing to you. And the word is this, parakaleo. It's a common compound word in the Greek. And here's what it means, to strongly call. I appeal to you. I urge you. I call you. Listen, listen now. And he says this, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, oftentimes, I think when we read this verse, we think only of the idea of purity, right? This verse is often used in the idea of, of physical purity. And while that's certainly included, it falls short of the, of the true meaning here. The idea here is simply your whole life, your whole life, who you are, your mind, your body, your spirit, your heart, your desires, your actions, your thinking, present in light of God's great plan and salvation, in light of the fact that that has reached your life, in light of his mercies to send his son on behalf of sinners to save sinners, and the fact that you know that now and have come to know that, give your whole life. This is now the goal of your life, the purpose of your life after being born again. To be a living sacrifice. Think about that term for a second. A living sacrifice. What is a sacrifice? A sacrifice is something that is died, has died in worship to God. And that's your life. You have died to your old life. You have repented of your sins. You have repented from being the Lord of your life. You have turned away. You have died. But you're not a dead sacrifice. You're a living sacrifice. So one who has lived his life is living his life. You're alive having died to yourself and living in worship to God. So that's the idea here. It's for the worship of God. It's one who has died but yet is living, born again, and now is a living sacrifice. All that you do is in worship to God. How does that happen? How does someone live a life in worship to God? Well, he tells you right after. And it's through becoming holy. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And this is what he says is your spiritual act of worship. You know how you live a life in worship to God? You live a holy life. After coming to know Christ, you are sanctified in Christ. That's the goal here. How does this happen? It happens through becoming holy. To become, listen now, holy, mature in your faith, perfected in your faith, Growing in your faith, that's God's plan for the Christian. That's God's plan for your life. From now until the day that you die, that's what's great in, God, in God's eyes. Holiness, maturity. Matthew 5 says this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's God's plan for the church. That's what happens here is maturity, growth. Now, the idea here of being acceptable, if you go back to the memory verse, acceptable. Think about just the, the formation of that word. It's what is able to be accepted. Now, you have already been made accepted by God through Christ in the plan of salvation, but now your life should practically look like what you've already been made. Your life should resemble one that is acceptable to God, able to be accepted. You are only perfectly accepted through Christ's atoning work. 
but now your life looks like something that is able to be accepted by God. You're becoming holy. This is the goal of your life. Your life resembles this. And this is your spiritual act of worship. Worship is not simply you standing there with your eyes closed and your hands raised and, oh, you feel it, right? Worship is a holy life. That's worship. That shows God to be great and worth living for. So now I want to point out one more thing. Just as Ephesians 5 gives us this same purpose, right? Christ died for us that he might present himself, present the church to himself in splendor, right, or in holiness, and that happens through the washing of the regeneration of uh, the washing of the word of God, right? The, the church becomes holy through being washed by the word. I think I'm like piecing together multiple verses when I just said that to you. But just as Ephesians 5 describes that, so Romans 12 describes this. How does the holiness happen? In Ephesians 5, it says literally, explicitly, Christ died to make a holy bride, and it happens through being washed by the word. Here also says the same thing. Christ died, we should live holy lives. It happens through the word. Because look at Romans 12 too. I, I, I should have asked you to turn there. Let me just turn there myself and I'll read it to you. Romans 12 too, right after this, says this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind <clears throat> that by testing... <coughs> You may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so here's what happens. Here's how you become holy. You ready? You are, the word of God gives you, it informs your mind. It renews your mind from what the world is telling you is true to what God says is true. And it informs you. So you are made holy. How? Listen now. Through the renewal of your mind. This is not a feelings thing. It's not, a, it's not an emotional thing. It's not what makes you holy. What makes you holy is the renewal of your mind, which is why the word of God is so important. It informs your mind and it gives you discernment. Discernment is what he says. This, so that you may discern what is the will of God. How do you discern what the will of God is? Well, you read it in the word of God. Then you know what is the will of God. And so this word informs your mind, gives you discernment. And when you follow it, you are cleansed and made mature. This is simply how it works. Holiness, perfecting through the word. That's the goal of your life after being saved. Colossians 1 says this. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom. Here's the purpose. Why did he warn and teach. And by the way, that's what preaching is, right? Some people say it's just the teaching. No, 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 it's not. It's the warning and it's the teaching, right? That's, that describes the proclamation. So will you say, what is, what is proclamation or preaching? Well, it involves two things, teaching and what? Warning. What's wrong? What's right? What to avoid? What to do? Right? So what is the purpose of his preaching the word? To present everyone what? Mature in Christ. Second Timothy 3 says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why do we have the word of God? What does it do? Well, it presents the man of God complete, equipped for every good work. I mean, this is, this is simple. Listen now. In light of salvation, you are to be made holy, which is your worship of God, and that happens through the word. Now, finally, let's, let's notice this, and we'll move to our text. I want us to notice this, and this is so important. Friends, listen. Everything that happens from this point forward in the book of Romans is so important very practical. As complicated and as deep as Romans 1 through 11 is, 
Everything that Paul instructs in Romans 12 through 16 is very, very simple to understand and very practical to live out. And I want you to understand this. Everything flows from the initial and foundational exhortation to become holy. Everything flows from this. Here's salvation, therefore be holy. And everything that you live will be in a response to or flow from or be a result of or a byproduct of you being made mature by the word of God. So he speaks in Romans 12 through 16 of some very practical things. Everything, this tells us everything flows from maturity. Everything flows from being made mature in Christ. From the knowledge of the word of God, that's the goal, that's the root of everything, and then everything else is the fruit. And so you must understand this. A few of us, many of us, listened to a a, a set of sermons recently, and I was just blown away by this clarity. Everything flows from maturity. Everything. If you want to have a heart for service or evangelism, or you want to parent well, everything flows from you being made mature. Don't focus on the fruit. Focus on the root. Be made mature in Christ through the word of God, and everything else will flow from that. Understand rightly the word of God. When you understand things like Romans 1 through 11, the story of Israel, you are made mature because you understand God's plan. You realize it's not about you. You wrestle with some things that, that, that maybe are hard for you to get, understand, or wrestle with in your heart. When you understand the true meaning of the word of God, and week after week, year after year, for a lifetime, you are being made mature through the word of God, all of your practical living out the word of God will flow from you just being made mature. Listen now. Verses, uh, uh, chapters, thir- um, uh, chapters 12 through 16 in Romans, you know what it talks about? It talks about this. Not thinking more highly of yourself than you should. Using your gifts to serve the body. Loving each other with brotherly affection. Contributing and giving to the church. Doing good to those who oppose you. Entrusting yourself to God in suffering, submitting to authorities, remaining sexually pure, not causing others to stumble, proclaiming Christ, evangelism, not being naive and believing every doctrine and being tossed around doctrinally. All that flows in Romans 12 through 16 from becoming, made, uh, becoming mature in Christ through the word. And the same thing happens in Ephesians. When you get to Ephesians 4, after we understand the, uh, what God has done in salvation, Ephesians 4 then becomes very practical. And that's what flows after this. I mean, this is, this is very wonderful. So let me say this application, last thing. I keep saying last thing, but this is the last thing. We only have two verses to cover today, but they are um, profound. So I want to get to them. You are to become holy and mature through the word for the rest of your life. God wants a mature church. He wants you to be made mature in Christ. That's the goal of your life. And this also tells me this. If our church isn't motivated by the spirit to serve in endless out-of-the-box ways that you've been gifted by God. I want to raise up. My gifts are not for myself. They're for the service of the body. If that's not happening and people are just raising up on their own and saying, we got to serve the body this way. We need this. We need to do this. It, It doesn't tell me that people don't understand serving. It tells me that our church isn't mature yet. And that's what we need to focus on. If, if, if people aren't motivated by the spirit of God to reach their neighbors with the gospel and evangelize and see people saved, it, it doesn't tell me that our church doesn't quite yet understand evangelism. It tells me our church isn't mature yet. 
If our church isn't motivated by the spirit of God to give all the resources that God has given you to the church for the service of the body, for instance, right, giving, it doesn't tell me that that our church doesn't understand giving. It says our church isn't mature yet to understand God has given me everything. It's all for him. He gives me the power to gain everything. Everything is for his glory and I'm keeping it for myself. I, I mean, I could just list, the list just goes on, right? If, if I'm not, if I'm, our church doesn't understand yet how to parent, right? It, it doesn't tell me that you don't understand the principles of parenting, but that we gotta make you mature in Christ. And so listen now, if we want our church to be one that is glorifying to God in every way over the next 50 years, we have to be a church that's focusing on maturing, becoming made, becoming holy in the word of God and then living that out. And that's what's in view here in Romans 12, one through two. Really here, just 12, one. And, um, and so let me just encourage you. If you're wondering how you can more practically live out God's plan for your life. Focus on being made mature in Christ through the word of God. And I think conviction will come from the word of God and you will change because of what the word of God says. So, very well. Let's move on now to the text that the Lord has given us this morning. It's important, but that um, took up our time. But anything we talk about is the word, right? And and so we need to learn all of this. So Romans, uh, um, Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. Let's read this, and we're gonna see Luke 17, 20 through 37. We're gonna um, understand what he's speaking to us and speaking in general in this next part of Luke. So you ready? Let's read it together. Luke 17, 20 through 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look, there, or look, here. Do not go out and follow them, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you that in, uh, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, this is a very straightforward text. Although I know it may not seem like it from the, from the surface. Now, what we're seeing here is Jesus giving clarity about the kingdom. Okay? So that's what you can write down as the main point, which is why I've entitled these, the series of two messages, Clarity About the Kingdom. Okay? Clarity About the Kingdom. Jesus is clarifying, you ready? Jesus is clarifying the expectations of the kingdom of God. That's all he's doing here. So 
Jesus in the first two verses of the section is providing clarity about the present kingdom. And so today's message will cover verses 20 through 21 and be entitled part one, the present kingdom. And on the next Lord's Day, we will look at the Lord give clarity about the future kingdom. And so there will be a part two and cover verses 22 through 37, which will, Jesus will provide clarity about the future kingdom. And so Jesus is providing clarity about the kingdom. And now he is providing clarity today in verses 20 through 21. And he's correcting the Pharisees in the fact the that the present kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. That's what he's doing. That's what he's correcting here. He's providing clarity about the present kingdom, and he's making it clear that the present kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. So the future kingdom will be a spiritual and a what? Physical kingdom. The present kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. That's what he's making clear. That's the main point. That's what he's giving clarity about. That's what's being made known here. The Jews heard of the coming Messiah and they were waiting for his arrival and they were looking for signs. They were anticipating his rule. They were expecting certain effects. They anticipated that the Romans would be driven out from their governmental rule over the Jews they expected political and military rule. They expected freedom and peace and prosperity physically. They expected through Jesus' ministry, because he gave marks of messianic signs, right? Think about this. Jesus is on the earth, and he's performing similar signs that were given to them an Old Testament prophecy about the time when the Messiah would come and rule, they saw marks of messianic expectation. Yet, they hadn't seen or experienced anything that they truly expected, which was political rule or Roman defeat. So they were skeptical, they were cynical, they were doubtful, they were incredulous, they were suspicious, they were dismissive, they were unbelieving of Jesus because they're seeing some marks of messianic expectation and arrival, and yet there is no Roman rule. They're not freed from Rome. The Romans are still occupying all of Jewish territory, and they're still over Israel. And so Jesus, as he often does, is correcting the Jews' misunderstanding about the coming kingdom, right? You've heard this all before that the Jews expected a physical kingdom, a physical rule. And this passage is the one that gives us clarity about the fact that this is not what the Old Testament was speaking about. The Old Testament was speaking about something spiritual, and it will become something physical in the future. And it does play itself out in physical ways. But they failed to understand the prophecies. They failed to interpret the times. They failed to believe that, God, that Jesus was the Christ and that he came to establish a kingdom. And why did they misunderstand? He indeed is God's Christ. And all these messianic signs are, are symbols of his coming and signs of his coming. But what he came to establish the first time he came was something spiritual. Entrance into the kingdom of God through repentance and faith and regeneration in the Holy Spirit. That's what he came to bring the first time. And when he comes the second time, he will bring something very physical, right? And so he has come to provide access into a spiritual kingdom, peace with God through forgiveness of sin, submission to his reign and rule through obedience to his word. When you enter the kingdom of God, you come under the reign and rule of the king. And that's a spiritual thing. You realize your sinful condition. You realize your need to repent. You realize the lordship and deity of Jesus Christ. You turn from your sin and you come under his reign and rule. 
And you are in the kingdom of God through salvation. You are in the kingdom of God through salvation. Christ is advancing God's reign and rule through reconciliation with God. And yet, as we'll see in verses 22 through 37, Christ's kingdom will be made visible. When he, listen, returns suddenly, separates believers from unbelievers, destroys the earth, makes a new physical heavens and a new perfect earth and intimately dwells with his redeemed people, he will make it physical. And so first, though, presently, he is calling people to repentance, submission to the king who will grant forgiveness through the sacrifice of Christ, having peace with God, no longer guilty of treason, under treason, under his divine rule, and that's entrance into his spiritual kingdom. So today, as we'll hear, Jesus is giving clarity about his spiritual kingdom. He's urging people to come into his kingdom before his physical return. And he's informing people how to enter that. And we are warned not to seek for a physical, temporal, prosperous kingdom as the goal of our lives, but a spiritual one. And this is very practical. Because you could also interpret, and many people do, and this is not just like some cult. This is just everyday people on the North Shore. You can interpret all the promises of God in salvation as physical blessings that will come to your life in the Messiah, in Christ. And what people fail to realize as they come in is that those are all spiritual blessings in salvation. And that's not what they're seeking. That's not what they're looking for. That's not the goal. That's not the win. That's not the highest achievement, salvation, and spiritual blessing in Christ. The goal is physical blessing through Christ. And they do the same thing that the Jews do, even though that that is rooted historically by reading into the scriptures physical blessing that will come from the Messiah in their life. And so they sit here and look for that and wait for that as the goal and not the spiritual blessing of salvation, which God is really referring to. So let's move into the division of this to make the doctrine clear and how it arises from the text. Verses 20 through 21, I've divided into three headings. Number one, questioning about the kingdom, verse 20a. Number two, what the kingdom is not, verse 20b through 21a. And then number three, what the kingdom is, verses 21, verse 21b. So to make these clear as we progress through this main point, let's take these one at a time. Number one, questioning about the kingdom, verse 20 a Luke 17 being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come the Pharisees are asking Jesus when the kingdom of God would come and their questioning is what prompts this answering it's easy to see the connection really listen to the logical flow of the previous section okay He speaks in verses seven through nine of chapter 17 about the fact that we have no claim on God. The Jews thought that they did have claim on God because they were children of Abraham. Listen, you gotta listen. And in verses 11 through 17, it shows Jesus graciously providing common grace and more importantly, salvation. So we have no claim on God We don't deserve anything from him. The Jews didn't realize this. They had claim on God because of being descendants of Abraham. Yet, God provides graciously common grace and then grace in providing salvation. That's logical flow of these previous two sections. And now verses 20 through 21, we see, yet the Jews are not looking for salvation. They are not interpreting the scriptures rightly. That's not what's most important to them, salvation. They don't think that they need this. They are part of Israel. 
They are looking for, seeking for, and hoping for something physical, political, personal, and prosperous. Tracking? It's clear, listen now, the connection to the following verses for true disciples. Because listen, it's the Pharisees that ask right now, tell us about this kingdom. When is it coming? We're expecting this kingdom, this physical kingdom. And you know who asks in the next section, what about this kingdom or who he describes it to in the next section? It's his disciples. The disciples will experience a physical kingdom, true disciples. The Pharisees must realize right now that this is a spiritual kingdom, which is what they are failing to realize. So listen, a physical kingdom will be a reality. It's going to be a byproduct, though, of salvation. So let's talk about this for just a second so you have understanding. What did the Pharisees expect? When I say they expected a physical kingdom, that's what's literally happening here. That's why they're asking this question. So if you want to understand the text, you need to understand that. That's what they're literally asking here. When's the, when's the rule? When's the Roman rule going to be pushed away? Where's the physical, prosperous, personal, present kingdom coming? And what they didn't understand is it wasn't dealing with a physical reality, but a spiritual one. So they viewed all the Old Testament prophecies through physical realities. Why? Because they didn't need salvation in their mind. You got to understand this. Listen, they were part of Israel. We are already in. We don't need salvation. We don't need to be made right with God. We're descendants of Abraham. Right? We need the physical reign and rule of the Messiah on the earth to free us from all of our enemies. That's very practical today. Many people don't believe that they need salvation as their greatest need. But what they more greatly need is God's present, prosperous, personal work in their life. And this is what's happening here. The greatest need isn't physical. It's spiritual. That's what we just saw with the nine lepers, with the ten lepers, right? We just saw that. I mean, that's connecting us too. The greatest need is not physical. It's what? Spiritual. All of this is is very, very relevant. So what are they believing? Well, they're, they're viewing the Old Testament prophecies as something purely physical. Isaiah 2, 6. As for me, and these are just some of them. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his what? Government. I mean, this is purely physical for them. There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jeremiah 23, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name in which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, they shall dwell in the land. And so, listen, without, without hearts being convinced that they were sinners in separation from God needing to be saved by God due to his holiness and our sinfulness, and the temporal nature of animal sacrifice and the repeated frequency of their sins, without being aware of that, they had an understanding that this was purely physical. They expected the Messiah to establish everything that was promised in Abraham, to, in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. They expected the Messiah to establish everything that was promised in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. They expected the Messiah to establish everything that was promised in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Everything in a physical, prosperous way. They misunderstood even the prophecy of God's future ultimate kingdom, which will be physical, 
when, um, when he comes back. He expect, they expected even all this to happen on earth, like Isaiah 11. Therefore, the wolf, this is about the second coming. They didn't understand there was be two comings, right? So they're expecting everything, even in the future coming of Christ, to be present and physical. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. A cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw with the ox, uh, like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In, the, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people on him, shall the nations inquire and the resting place shall be glorious. Zechariah 14, 4. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem and on the east and the Mountain of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west, very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move, nor- uh, shall move northward and the other half southward. I mean, I could just go on. Isaiah 32, Micah 4, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 40, Amos 9, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 65, Isaiah 11, all of which they expected to happen immediately and physically. And all of this was their expectation. They didn't understand the two comings of Christ. They didn't understand the spiritual kingdom that was coming first because they didn't understand their need for salvation. And that's what Jesus is clarifying. There will be a, spirit, there will be a physical kingdom for his true disciples. And he's explaining that next to his disciples. They can expect that. But first, the Pharisees need to be corrected that what he's doing right now is is spiritual. So Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom. John came to proclaim the kingdom, Matthew 3. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom, Matthew 4, Luke 4, Luke 6, Luke 7, Luke 8, Luke 9, Luke 11, the list goes on. Yet they weren't looking to be saved from sin. They were looking to be saved prosperous on the earth. And the reason was is because they thought they were already righteous. Think about this for a second. The only reason you would not be looking for a savior is if you didn't think you needed to be what? Saved. Luke 18, 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were what? Righteous. That's the Jews. That, if you want to, okay, what were the Jews? Well, right here, Luke 18, 9. Right? That's who they were. The physical kingdom was also what they expected at the triumphal entry, which is why they cheered for him, and then they did what? Crucified him. John 12. So they took branches of palm trees, went to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And and Jesus found a, a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey, on a donkey's called. His disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered these things that had been written about him and that had been done to him. This was a physical expectation. So the Pharisees, listen, are not asking genuinely. They're not asking with right desire, but they're hearing the rumblings of messianic expectation. They've seen the, the lepers heal, which healed, which resembles messianic expectation. And this man claims to save people from their sin, yet there's no political rule. There's no coronation of his coming. He was born in a stable. He's from the town of Nazareth. There's no political signs. And so this is a mocking question after seeing the reality of his healing. Like Luke 16, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, they heard all these things and they ridiculed him. The same thing is happening here. They've seen all these signs by Jesus and they're mocking him. The expectation is not physical, it should be spiritual. Now, this is extremely true. Let me say this, and then we'll move to point two. This is what people desire today. Even though all of this is rooted in in history, people see the spiritual realities that are presented about salvation in the word of God, and they expect and long for physical realities as their greatest need. And that's what they seek. Many will come in here and for so long be so excited about Jesus 
because of the physical realities they expect from him by misinterpreting the scriptures. And not realizing that salvation, forgiveness of sin, is their greatest need. Who cares about all the physical realities? You need salvation through the Christ. There was a man, and he's passed away now, that, I'm, that I used to see at Starbucks all the time. And every time I would see him, he had cancer, and every time I would see him, he would articulate, um, by his stripes, we're healed. And his full expectation was physical healing from his, his cancer. And we talked a lot. And I could never get through that what he needed most was salvation. And Isaiah 53 is speaking of what? Salvation. By his stripes, we are healed from our sin. And, and this, this, is, this is a blindness that is rooted in history for the people of Israel. And this is a blindness that is very relevant today. I, I'm trying to describe how relevant that is. People who go to church, come in here, seek after God for physical, temporal realities. And what God means to be sought for first are spiritual realities. And those physical realities will come in the fruit of your life and they'll come in the second coming when you do enter heaven. But what you are looking for needs to be prosperity, peace, success, healing spiritually in Christ through salvation. And that's what's being described here. John 3, we see a man named Nicodemus. This man came to Jesus by night and he said, teacher, we know you're a, a, a rabbi. We know you're a teacher that comes from God. No one can do these signs unless God is with him. Basically, you, you, we see that, that, that you come from God. You're establishing some physical kingdom. Jesus just gets right to the point. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is what? Born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is pointing from a spiritual reality, a physical reality to a spiritual reality. You're missing the point, Nicodemus, right? And so this is the greatest thing that you could ever attain. Let me just say this. So many people come in and salvation is inferior to their physical, immediate needs for Jesus to do in their life. Salvation to them is inferior, yeah, 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 great, awesome, cool. We heard about that salvation stuff. I think I got that under control. Um, I got that figured out. Yeah, I'm listening to that. I know, you know, that's something that Jesus talks about, the Bible talks about. But man, when he does these immediate changes to my life, that's what I'm longing for and seeking. And that's what I'm expecting. And that's superior. And... Um, and they are missing the whole point. What Jesus is bringing is a spiritual kingdom. And they were blind to this reality. The Jews were. First Corinthians 2 says this, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit for they are folly to him. And they are not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So this is where their question is coming from. And now Jesus is providing clarity about the kingdom. Number two, what we see is what the kingdom is not. Verses 20 through 21 20B through 21A. He says this, the kingdom, it says he answered them. So again, look at verse 20. It's the Pharisees asking this question. They are the ones who need to be corrected in their understanding of the kingdom. Look at verse 22. To the disciples, he's speaking of a day that is coming, that they will experience something physical. Verse 25, that must happen first. That must happen after the what? Verse 25, the crucifixion. That's not happening for the disciples until after the crucifixion. They will experience a physical reality. That's what's gonna be talked about next time. Here, he's correcting the Pharisees about their misunderstanding of spiritual versus physical kingdom. Only the disciples will experience something physical. But go back to verse 21 or 20b. He answered them, the kingdom of God is coming in ways, not, in, not coming in ways that can be what? Observed. 
I mean, this is just very straightforward. It's not a physical kingdom, right? I mean, it's just very, very plain. You see it? It's just very clear. When's the kingdom going to come? Uh, the kingdom is not something that you're going to what? See. I mean, this is very straightforward. What they should be looking for is not physical. Jesus is correcting them, as he always does with the Pharisees. He, they are expecting things that were physical. They wanted things that they could see with their eyes and expectations that they could experience in this life. And Jesus says, what I've come to do is to do something internal, invisible, through the regeneration by the Holy Spirit. It's not a physical monarch you should be looking for. And, and let me say this, make no mistake, God is the king of the physical. He's the creator and sovereign Lord, meaning he, reign, he made the universe and he reigns and reign, rules over the universe creation uh, and then fall and now creation suffers the effects of sins but God is king meaning this he's omniscient omnipotent omnipresent no one counsels him or offers him anything that he must repay he's all wise all knowing all powerful he exalts himself he accomplishes his exact purposes in any way he chooses with whomever he chooses and in the future his spiritual kingdom will be revealed as visible Right? Revelation 1 says this, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and what? Every eye will what? See him. It will be made physical. And his true disciples will experience that. Christ will be revealed. And you know what else will be revealed physically? Who are true believers and who are not true believers. Romans 8 says this, For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. But until this physical kingdom comes, Jesus is bringing about a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of people as more and more people are saved, come under his reign and rule, his kingdom advances. Now, let me say this. This is, this is, this is, what, he's, this is what he's saying. It, it, this is a spiritual kingdom through, being, through salvation. You come under the reign and rule of Christ when you're saved. And many people don't realize that. Listen, that is what salvation is. If you think of salvation any other way, you're not thinking rightly. And you have made up maybe your own version of salvation. Salvation is the forgiveness of sins through the atoning work of Christ to be made right with God. And now you come back as you were originally created and designed to be, which is under his reign and rule, his lordship in your life. Right? And that's the way that God advances his spiritual kingdom. I will tell you, even nowadays, this is extremely relevant because people want to change the world and change um, some things that are uh, unjust, unjust in our world. And can I tell you that social justice, social reform, political reform, will, well, widespread reform will never change the world. Jesus has made that clear. What changes the world is rebirth of individuals through the gospel, which then spreads as they redeem the world back to its original moral design. You understand? That's how this gospel works. It works in individual hearts. We can't reform something at a broad level. You could, we could try, but we, the world has fallen. It needs to be redeemed through regenerate people who have heart changes through the gospel. And so that's how we advance God's kingdom through individual hearts turning to Christ, repenting and being saved. But to be honest with you, even Paul says in 2 Timothy, this is not gonna happen fully on this earth. It says men will go from bad to worse, actually. And so that's the progression of the world. The only time that this is gonna be fully redeemed is when we see God's physical kingdom when Christ's returns. But this is what Jesus is making clear. You are missing the point, Pharisees. This is not a physical kingdom. Your greatest need is not freedom from the Romans. Your greatest need is not personal, prosperous, present, immediate. This is a spiritual, invisible, internal kingdom. 
through the realization that you are sinners in need of saving, repenting of your sin, trusting in God through his Christ to be reconciled with God and saved and coming back under his reign and rule. You're missing the point. This is not coming in ways that can be observed. You can't see it, which leads us to our final point, what the kingdom is. And he says this in verse 21b. 21, yeah, B. For behold, because we've already covered, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, right? It's, he's saying the same thing. You're not gonna see it. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. This is an emphatic statement. For behold, the kingdom of God, God's reign and rule. The word, um, into, there's two words here. Intos humon, right? That's the combination of, of words here. And the translation is in or within or among and then you or your. And so some translations give you, give within you. Some translations give in your midst. Some translations give among you. And therefore there's been some debate among scholars as Jesus referring to himself, like it's, the kingdom of God is among you. I'm, I'm here. Is Jesus referring to the fact that the kingdom will suddenly appear to them like the kingdom of God, um, uh, you know, will be in your midst? Um, that's when it's coming, answering the question. Speaking to the second coming. Is he saying it's in, your, it's in reach of you? It's in your midst. You can grab it. You can hold it. Or is he saying it's within you? Well, based upon a couple of things, I think you can determine pretty simply he's speaking of the fact that it's inside of you because what he has come to bring is internal salvation. And what he says before this is that it's not observable. You can't say it's here or there, right? And so it would seem that this next phrase would be something contrary to something being made visible, which would be something that's what? Invisible, spiritual, internal. Also, the word intos means inside, and it only appears one other time in the New Testament. Matthew 23, it says, you blind Pharisees first clean the what? Inside of the cup. It's the only other time it is referred to. But here, let me just say this. I think that this could be ambiguous for certain reasons. Like, could, does God, does God mean inside of you, but we also have the sense of, Christ is here, the kingdom's within your reach, and the physical kingdom will be coming. Yeah, all of that is in view here, and I think we can take all of that in. But what Jesus is, and some people say, well, he's speaking to the Pharisees, so he's saying the spirit of God, the kingdom of God is inside of you as, as if they're already saved. Jesus is not telling them that they're born again. Jesus is just speaking of a general, in a general way. It's an inside job. It's an inside work. That's where salvation occurs. That's where the kingdom of God is. Romans 14, 7, he says this, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it's not something physical we're looking for. It's something spiritual, which is salvation through believing in Christ. It's inside of you. And that's what they were missing. True disciples will experience something physical after Christ dies and after experiencing regeneration. And of course, let me just say this and we're done. Your internal spiritual salvation will produce physical results. Matthew 7 says you will recognize them by their what? Fruits. So in conclusion, Jesus is clarifying the expectations about the kingdom that the Pharisees have misunderstood. This is a spiritual kingdom. They are expecting something physical. The divine Christ came to reign and rule in the hearts of men through repentance and faith in him as a crucified risen Christ for the forgiveness of sins according to his word. That's what you should expect. That's what you should desire. That's what you should understand. And so the question is this, are you in the kingdom of God? Have you come under the lordship of Jesus Christ? 
Have you come into this kingdom spiritually through salvation? That's the only way that you can expect to be a part of his visible, physical kingdom when he returns. And that's what we'll look at next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We traveled a lot of terrain today. Romans 12. And here in Luke 17. Help us to be people who focus our life on being made mature in Christ through your word in light of salvation. And I pray that practical things like serving and evangelism and giving and friendship and parenting, etc., would all flow from understanding the word rightly and maturing in our minds. And then, God, I pray from what we learned from Luke 17, that you would please, Lord, by your grace, help us to understand that this is a spiritual kingdom you are advancing through salvation. And that's what we would give our lives to. And I pray that the many people on the North Shore who have misunderstood that, that when they stand and sing in a church and their measurement of whether or not the kingdom of God has come into their life, just like the Pharisees' measurement of whether or not the kingdom of God has come to the earth was all physical and they they would expect and look to physical signs and realities around them and blessings to determine whether or not the kingdom has come to them, that they would have their eyes opened and their hearts softened to the fact that this is a spiritual kingdom you are advancing through salvation of people coming under your reign and your rule in the word of God by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only you can do this work. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.